Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. We're going to continue looking at Hebrews this evening, and uh, I want to have you go ahead and open up Hebrews chapter 1. And I think we've had three lessons so far, and we've only gotten through verse 4, and we're starting with verse 4 again today, so we didn't really get all the way through it. But I think we'll get to the end of chapter 1 today. Move a little bit, a little bit faster. Hopefully we'll get to the end of chapter 1 this evening. Uh, so the notes that you have, there all the way through the end of chapter 2, but I know we won't get that far this evening, and even if... I could, it would take a long time. Um, so I really want to focus on uh, the first part of this second section. If you notice at the top, it says Roman numeral number two, Christ's superiority over angels. And you remember that in the beginning, I gave you an outline. It was in the notes then, and I can print that up again if somebody doesn't have them. Uh, but as we go through Hebrews, it begins with, the superior revelation of Jesus Christ, and then moves on to this, Christ's superiority over angels. But really, the first part that we looked at, the first few verses, you could also just call them an introduction. I don't want to waste a lot of time on the outline part of it, because this is how I've divided the book up, and uh, a lot of people divide the book pretty much along these same lines, because that's really what the, the, the letter is. And as we've gone through in great detail, this is a letter written to the Christians who lived in Rome that were Jewish, to Jewish Christians that lived in Rome. It does not mean, of course, that it applies only to you if you're, if you're Jewish. It applies to each one of us. But um, because of who it's written to and the way that it's written and the purpose of what it was written for, we talked a lot already, and we're going to get into that as we go through the book about the persecution that they were facing and how that persecution had been very active in the years prior to the writing of this book, and will be extremely active in the years after the writing of, of this letter. Uh, but during the time of the writing of this letter, it says that they had not suffered uh, unto the shedding of blood. Uh, but that suffering unto the shedding of blood is coming very soon for them in, in Rome. And yet, under the... the what I'm calling passive persecution that they were living under, the pressure of the society that they were in. And we've already talked about this and looked at that, how that type of persecution is even more dangerous to our soul than active persecution, than suffering to the point of the shedding of blood, because, it's, it, it, because it comes in such a more deceptive way. And we begin to compromise in, in little things and slowly but surely were led away from Christ. And that's what was happening here. And for them, it meant going back to the synagogue. Uh, it meant going back to Judaism with a private recognition of Jesus being the Messiah, but without making any public statements or public uh, to, uh, um, uh, obvious uh, um, trying to look for the word there, but public statements concerning that, to the point that they were, they were not gathering together as believers anymore. They stopped going to church, as we would say, and just went to, to synagogue. And that's what Hebrews 10 talks about, that they should not forsake the assembling of themselves uh, together. So we're going to jump right into this second section in Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, beginning with verse 4, I'll read it in, in just a minute. If you'll remember, I told you that Hebrews is a series of arguments and uh, with proofs that are put out uh, uh, with, for each argument. And then there's a sure conclusion that comes at the end of each one of these arguments, and each one of them builds upon the one that came before. So this is really the first argument that's in the book. And when I say argument, I'm talking more in the sense of proving something in a debate, not in arguing with something uh, with somebody about something that you don't know. Uh, but this is the first argument. And if you look at our notes, it just simply says, giving testimony and demonstrating to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And here's the part I want to draw your attention to. Through the scriptures, and therefore, he is greater than the angels. As we go through Hebrews, 
Every single argument will be supported and proven by the Scripture. And when I say by the Scripture, I'm talking about what we call today the Old Testament, or is more commonly referred to as the Hebrew Bible, because the New Testament hadn't been completed yet at that time. And the proofs that are given are based off of Old Testament Scripture. So there's many, many, many multiple references to the Old Testament throughout the entire book, and we're going to look at a lot of them uh, today. So in Luke chapter 24, uh, a chapter that we read in, in its entirety last Sunday, and we're going to read some from it this Sunday, also you'll remember that as Jesus is walking with the two on the road to Emmaus, that it says in verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So we have the example of Jesus, that he does not uh, preach the gospel without the Bible, that he explains to them all things concerning himself in the scripture. These are Jewish people, okay? And these are people that if you can show it to them in the Bible, and they can see that and have their minds opened and their heart open, then they will believe it because they believe that this is the Word of God. Uh, then in the book of Acts, we see this several times uh, when Paul and Silas uh, come to Berea, for example, in chapter 17, we read that when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews and now these, these Jews, were more noble-minded than those, those Jews in Thessalonica. For they, the Jews in Berea, received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So whatever Paul was preaching on, he was preaching from the scripture. He was devoting himself to the word of God to bring them the truth of the gospel through the scripture. And then they were taking notes and they were going home and they were spending time every day gathering together to search this out in the scripture and to piece it all together. They needed to see it for themselves. And the Bible says that because of this, they were noble minded people. In Acts chapter 18, verse five, when Paul comes to Corinth, he meets with Aquila and Priscilla, and we've talked about them in relationship to Hebrews already, and uh, he's making tents with them, and they're working together, and then it says that when Timothy came to him, in verse 5, it says that Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. He stopped making tents and started doing pastoral work full-time. Uh, he, he was devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So there's Three witnesses, and in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. Beginning with Jesus, continuing with the apostles in the book of Acts, and continuing here in Hebrews, these arguments are made on the basis of Scripture. So this first one is to show that if he is the Messiah, and he indeed is the Messiah, then he is greater than angels. Why is that important that uh, they know that he's greater than angels? I mean, I think if I were to say to any of you and probably to anybody outside that I think Jesus is greater than angels, they'd probably go, oh yeah, of course Jesus is greater than angels because they're going to think of it kind of like the captain of the football teams better than the, the freshman player or something like that. And, but that's really not what's being shown to them. I think that they probably would have just agreed that he's greater than angels, but this is the first argument. And so this groundwork is being laid for them to understand, number one, he's greater than angels. And that means that he's greater than Moses. And that means that he's greater than the priesthood of Aaron. He's greater than anything that's happening in that temple in, in Jerusalem, and it continues on from there. So the word angel in the Greek is angelos. It's where we get the word angel from. And in the Hebrew, it's the word malach. And both of these words, angelos and malach, they simply mean a messenger, someone who is sent to bring a message. But of course, in the context of Scripture, it's referring to God's angels. In a sense, we could also, just the argument is much easier with, with them, we could also throw in there, and there's some scriptures here where it would seem to fit any of God's angels, even the fallen angels who are no longer God's angels, but they were created to be God's angels. But another important aspect of this that we don't always understand, but they did understand, and it comes out in, in Hebrews concerning angels, is that there are people that can be God's angels also. 
or can be referred to as God's angels. And in the Old Testament, in particular, and these arguments are based on the Old Testament, this word malach is often, or not real often, but enough used in reference to certain people that, uh, but it will never be translated angel into English. It'll be translated messenger, but it's actually the same word. So these are God's messengers. And we're going to see that they are God's servants. And it's not really the word we like to use, but it really fits perfect here. They are God's slaves. They don't have a choice. They are his servants. They do what he tells them to do. It's something I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about tonight, but sometimes people wonder, well, you know, couldn't Satan be saved? Couldn't he repent or something? You know, come back and be Lucifer again or something. But it's going to come up here, and we're going to get to that even already in this first chapter, that Jesus did not come to save angels. They never had a choice. They were never given free will. They're not the same as we are. They were not created in the image and in the likeness of God, okay? And yet, we know their glory, we know their greatness, and we know their power. And uh, if we were ever in a big fight, we would definitely want to have one of God's angels uh, on, on our side. So these are his messengers, his servants. But as I said, it can also refer to the prophets. In Malachi chapter 2 and verse 7, a verse that I really love, uh, referring to the priest, it says, For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. It's Malachi 2.7. And men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. It says literally in the Hebrew, he is the malach, he is the angel of the Lord of hosts. And it's talking about the priest, the, the, the pastor, the preacher, somebody who's sent to speak God's word. Even the name Malachi that this is in, in Malachi chapter 2 verse 7, means the angel of God or the messenger of God. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to kind of take these one or two verses at a time, uh, or three or four at a time at certain places. But let's look at chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, a verse we already looked at uh, with the first section, and we're going to begin this second section with it also. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has, an inher as, has inherited a more excellent name than they. I want to draw your attention to the words having become. Now, I need you to put your thinking caps on tonight we're going to look at some details here. Having become is different from what it says in verse 3 where it says he is. In verse 3 it says he is. In verse 4 it says he became. There's a difference between being something and becoming something, right? Because if you become something then that, it's implied that you were not that something before you became that something. So he became something. We see that Jesus became something, having become. Um, it can also mean he proved himself to be. Uh, it's a, this, this same Greek word could mean that he proved himself to be this, that he became this, that he appeared as this, that people began to understand him uh, as such. So it's a difference between what he is. What he is, we saw in verse 3, and we talked in detail about this, uh, that eternally he is, he did not become. He is uh, the uh, radiance of his glory. We talked about that word, and it says the exact representation, Greek, character, the character of his nature. And nature is the Greek, hypostosis, which is his substance. Or as we, again, we went over this, but I just want to repeat it, the objective reality, the true existence of the invisible God. That's who Jesus is. He did not become God's son at some point in history. Some people think mistakenly, well, he became God's son when he was uh, at the incarnation, when he was born onto the earth. That's not true. He is the eternally begotten son of God. And that's almost impossible for us to understand with our minds because we all remember that we have some kids now that we didn't know their names before they were born because they didn't exist. They, they, they became and that they became our son. But Jesus is the eternal begotten son of God. That's the truth of the scripture. But what did he become? It says that in his incarnation, see the incarnation is a becoming. That was a first for him. He had never been taken on human flesh. He had never been born into our earth, born of a woman. There's only one entrance into this earth. It's to be born into this earth. And in his incarnation, he became. In his suffering, 
he became. In his death, he became. These are things that were related to what he became. And these things that he became, it says he became much better than the angels. So we understand that neither his incarnation nor his suffering nor his death nor any of the experiences he experienced on this earth, none of these things lessened his divine nature. He did not stop becoming God. It's wrong doctrine and it's a mistake to think that only, only as a man did Jesus die on the cross because God can't die. That's not true. He never stopped being God. And he never stops being man. He is God and he is man. So when he died on the cross, he's still divine. He's still the son of God. And in fact, the scripture tells us that his obedience to the will of the Father in order to make purification of our sins, as it says in verse 3, that proves to us that his ministry is superior to that of the angels. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses that you know really well. In Philippians chapter 2, it says, and it's also a, a deep verse, it's not verses that aren't that easy to understand in a sense, but they're not that difficult either. It says, begin with verse 5, have this attitude or feelings uh, in yourselves, motivations in yourself, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, listen carefully, although he existed in the form of God, this is talking about who he is. When we read existed, it's past tense, it's English, it doesn't work the same as Greek, it doesn't work the same as Russian, by the way, either, but sometimes Past tense means that you stopped being something, right? But not always. And this doesn't mean that you stopped being something. Did you have a question? Yeah, what, what, what verse was that? Philippians? Philippians 2, verse 5. And continue. This is verse 6. Although he existed in the form of God. So in, we, we talk, in, in, in Greek it says that he existed or he had his existence or he is the existing one. It really doesn't have to be past or present here. And it says, in the form, the Greek word is morphe. And, we, you know, to, to morph the form of something. It means simply form. But this, ver this word is a synonym to the image, to uh, the substance, to these other words that we've looked at already. But the difference with the word form is you put all these together in the context and you get this beautiful picture of Jesus. Because the difference with the word form is it relates, just like it does in English, especially to an outward form, to something you can touch, something you can smell, something you can see, something you can experience with your senses. Okay? So again, even with this, Jesus did not become the uh, outward form of God when he, in his incarnation, he always is, he always was, he always was, and I can't explain it to you, it's just how it is. No man has seen the Father at any time, it says in John. So throughout the Old Testament, what's being said here to these Jewish Christians is, do you remember when Moses met God at the burning bush? That was Jesus. Do you remember when Abraham talked to God? That was Jesus. You know, wait, do you remember when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden? That was with Jesus. If, we have, if we're going to make a difference between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were walking with Jesus, okay? And Jesus said it much more plainly than any of these people have said it. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father, we are one. And I think that's something that anybody that has at least one child that they have a good relationship with can understand because we have little inklings of that even in, in our lives, that, that, that we are one, right? So he is the outward form of God. When you see him, you see God. And, and um, so, okay, so, who although he existed in the form of God, or in God's form, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this word grasped, it, take, it would take a long time to explain it, but it means not only to hold on to something, but to utilize it, to use it in your life. And so, he had equality with God. We see this on the cross. The scripture tells us plainly that he could have called angels to come and take him off of that cross. 
I'm assuming he didn't even have to call angels. He could just come down off that cross, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and people around were taunting him, if he had wanted to. But he chose to endure death all the way to the end. That means he did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped or as a thing to be used. But what it does not say is that he lost that equality with God. He, if he had lost it, then there would have been no temptation. Right? If he had lost it, there would be no need to say that he couldn't grasp it. He just doesn't have it even. But he has it, but he didn't use it. Okay? So it says that's who he is. That's who he existed. But it's, it's showing us also who he became. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's who he became. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, it says. So see, these things, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, they do not lessen his divine nature. And in fact, they enhance and prove to us that he is God in the flesh, because none of us could have done that. None of us could have stood there and hung there and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is God in the flesh, and he is better than, than angels. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so the angels, the demons, the men, everybody, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, we've been talking about this, but when it says Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord is a direct reference to Yahweh, or what we used to call Jehovah in the Old Testament, that he is God in the flesh. So this is who he became. Look with me at verse 5. And now the rest of the chapter is going to be quoting scripture, okay, from the Old Testament. It says in verse 5, for to which of the angels... Just listen to the words. It's really quite beautiful. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. So this is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And I'm, I'm not, some of these I'll look up. I'm not going to look these up right now, but you, you can look at them if you want. Psalm 2, verse 7. And the second part of it, where it says, and again, this is a quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and it's just the first part of the verse, just point A, okay? So we have Psalm 2, 7, and 2 Samuel 7, 14, A. And if you go over to 2 Samuel and read that, you're going to be reading it and thinking, well, it kind of seems like the writer of Hebrews just took that out of context. But obviously... The writer did not take it out of context because this is the inspired scripture, the inspired word of God. But what we see in that, and if you really are a student of the word of God and you listen to the Holy Spirit, you know that this is true. That sometimes you're reading something and suddenly something jumps off the page that you've never seen even though you've read it a thousand times. Because the word is just pregnant. There's so much in there. So this is a word that's spoken. And what the writer of Hebrews says and bases this on scripture, that Psalm 2, 7, where it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that that is not referring to David. Every Jew thought that that was referring to David. But it's not referring to David, it's referring to the Messiah. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, A, is also not referring to David, as every one of us would think if we just read it and didn't know this was in, in Hebrews. But it is referring specifically to the Messiah. So look with me at Acts chapter 13. I'm going to talk about the word begotten for a minute. And there's a lot of deep theological ideas here and things that you could talk about, each one of them for an hour, I guess. But just, just listen, you, you'll get it. It, it, it. We've already looked at, at a lot of them, but in Romans, I'm, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, I think it is, and verse... 33, in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, as the gospel is being preached here, we read uh, out of this sermon that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, speaking about the Jews, 
in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So when we put these verses together, we see that this word begotten, specifically in Psalm 2-7, and how it's being applied by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, is this understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? It's not an understanding of his incarnation when he was born but it's, uh, to Mary, but it's an understanding of his resurrection. And in a mysterious sense that I'm not going to try to explain because I can't, but it has to do with eternity. It has to do with God always having the last word. It has to do with God never having a plan B. He's just got his plan, and he always wins out with that plan in the end. In a mysterious sense, Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. Jesus is eternally the resurrected Son of God. He is eternally the begotten Son of God. And again, I'm not going to try to explain that. That's just how it is. But we have to get beyond the confines of our own flesh, and we have to enter into what the Holy Spirit is saying and what he's revealing here. And I'm not talking about something weird and metaphysical that cannot be understood, but there are certain things in Scripture that we just have to take by faith. We just have to believe them. Do you know that when the Scripture begins at the very beginning of the Bible in uh, Genesis chapter 1, 1, there's no proof offered for us that God exists. And there's no proof in the Bible that God exists. God doesn't even waste his time proving that he exists. Why would he ever prove that he exists? I'm not going to go around proving I exist. I exist. That's good enough for me. It's not good enough for you. That's your problem. You understand what I'm saying? But God doesn't prove that he exists. It's just in the beginning, God. And right away in the beginning verses, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Already, we see the Trinity from the very beginning without anybody proving it. Okay, so we just take this. He is speaking of his resurrection. In um, uh, verse, going back to Hebrews, in um, uh, chapter, um, where was it going? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, which we're not going to get to tonight, but it says it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory, that glory is speaking of our resurrection, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And we'll get to that verse later. But this theme of the resurrected Christ bringing us to resurrection and bringing us to his glory is woven throughout Hebrews, but especially here in these first two chapters. Okay, so look at verse 6. It says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. So, just, again, thinking caps. He is the firstborn. That's who he is. It's not who he became, it's who he is. And being firstborn means what? That there are other children, right? And being firstborn is a term, firstborn is a term that's used throughout the New Testament to refer again to the resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead, that we might be born again, that we might raise again from the dead. And because he is the firstborn, we enter into his inheritance as joint uh, heirs together with Jesus Christ, right? It's not our inheritance, it's his, he's the firstborn. But we enter into his inheritance because he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and to call us his friends. We have been born again by his blood. He has brought us also together with him. But there was a moment, and this is speaking about his incarnation, speaking about who he became, that he brings the firstborn into the world. So the father brings the son into the world. This is an act of becoming. You understand? It's being brought into the world. The Greek here means, uh, that it's, very, it's a real simple word, but it means more than just bring. It means to bring into something. We would say it like this. He introduces him into the world. He brings him into the world. He's already the firstborn, but he hasn't been introduced into the world yet, not in the flesh. So this is speaking of the incarnation. When we look at the, I don't know what your particular version says, but mine says the world. Does anybody have anything different there than the world? Some of you might have little marginal notes there. So this Greek word, the world, and I won't give you the Greek word, but it's going to come up again, and I'll remind you of it. 
It doesn't mean the planet, and it doesn't mean the world system. It's not the same word that's used for world throughout the New Testament. The word that's used for world everywhere is cosmos. Okay? Russians mean outer space when they say cosmos. And in the Greek, it means the whole world system and the planets and everything. Okay? But this word means the inhabited world. It's talking about people. Okay? He introduces them, him into man's society. He brings him into our, into our lives. He doesn't come here as an alien. You understand? He's not green. He doesn't have antennae. He doesn't come here as some kind of monster or some kind of titan that came from another world or like the god Apollos or Zeus or something. He is born into this world as a man. And he's a little baby, just like every one of us. And he spends nine months, approximately, in the womb of his mother, just like us. And he, and he sucked the milk from his mother's breast, just like we did. And he's raised just like we are raised. No difference. He's introduced into our world, okay? And I think in your notes there's some other scriptures there, Matthew 24, 14, Luke 2, 1. Each one of these is just an example of how this word is used. It has to do with the population of the world, with the world society. Okay, so it says, and let all the angels of God worship him. That comes from Psalm 97, 7. Psalm 97, 7. Well, you know, I think, what happened when he was born. At his incarnation, when he was born, the angels of heaven, they appeared to the shepherds. You remember that story? And I've got the scripture reference there, but you don't have to look it up because you know the story. They appeared to the shepherds, and it says that all of the entirety of the heavenly hosts, you know, I don't, I, I think, I always think what they saw was like, you know, sometimes you can really see the Milky Way real clear, kind of like if that Milky Way real clear <laughs> came right down above your head and the entire sky was filled with that kind of glory. That, that All of the heavenly hosts, they worshipped Jesus. They sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. Just in that song that they sang, which actually technically doesn't say they sang that. We just sing it, so I say it's a song. But in that song, in, that, in those verses, is everything that we're saying right here. That it's, it's glory to God in the highest, and it's on earth, peace and goodwill to, to men. So this scripture is referring to Jesus. Because in verse 7, uh, it, it says from Psalm 97, 7, that he, I'm sorry, verse 6, that let all the angels of God worship him. And at his incarnation, when he was brought into the world, indeed they did. Let me also give you John uh, chapter 1. John chapter 1. In verse 9, you, you know this verse? It says that, um, um, well, let's, let's just start with verse 6. It says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world, being introduced into the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him, it says in verse 10. It says that he enlightened every man. When he came into the world, every man saw his light. I want to be, be very honest with you. Nobody has an excuse before God. Every man sees the light of Jesus Christ. Now, we could do a lot better job of shining his light, I think, sometimes. But he came into this world, and he has enlightened this world with the light of God. And yet the world did not know him, even though he had created the entire world. So now let's look at verse 7. It says, and of the angels... So he brings Jesus into the world, and that says that. Of the angels, he says... So this is what he says about the angels, not about the Messiah who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. That's Psalm 104, verse 4. The 104th Psalm, verse 4. Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time right now talking about the minister's flame of fire part of it. I want to focus your attention on the word make, because that's the big point of this argument. That maybe you never noticed before. Uh, so far about Jesus, what's been said? 
It's been said that he is. It's been said that he became. It's been said that he is introduced. But not once has any been, anything been said about the Son of God being made. He is not created. He is the creator. And so this argument is saying, okay, this is what the Scripture says about the Messiah. And again, uh, and we talked about this already, for many of the Jews of that day, there was not, for the, in, the, in the basic rabbinical Jewish teaching, there was not an idea that the Messiah would be the eternal Son of God. And many of them would have seen that as complete sacrilege to say that the Messiah is equal to God. Okay? They had different shades of, uh, of teaching about this and understanding. But it's very clear in the Gospels that when Jesus talks to them about these things, they, they, they think he's blaspheming God because he says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? They don't get it. They don't understand it. So it, it may seem like just a given for us, but this was, a, is a, was and is a very valid argument that had to be made. And it's a very great thing, even if it's a given for us, sometimes the things we take for granted, we lose the power of them. Right? For us to realize that the Old Testament scriptures plainly teach that the Messiah was not created, that he comes from God into this earth. But the angels are made. They are created. It says he makes his angels' winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. It says that they are his messengers and that they are his servants. It does not say anything about them being his son. Look at verse 8. But of the son, he says, right? And then uh, look at um, verse 13. We're going to take this section as one. Of the son, he says, and then in verse 13 it says, but to which of the angels has he ever said? So you have this, this uh, correlation drawn between the Son and the angels. You know, I want to turn your attention to that because we're going to end with that tonight when we get to it in just a few minutes. It's, it's the most important part of this first chapter. This correlation between the Son and the angels. So it says, but of the Son, he says, but to which of the angels, in verse 13, has he ever said? So it begins with Psalm 45. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So let's, let's go over to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. So in Psalm 45, uh, just begin reading uh, with verse 1. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God. Notice that? Every one of the Jews then understood, and anybody that read this for the first time could at least kind of guess that this seems kind of strange. Like, who's this king, right? But they clearly understood that this was a messianic psalm. There are many psalms that are very clearly messianic. They're referring to the Messiah. And they understood that. But what they ne had never really got is that it shifts from talking right there in verse 5 about the Messiah conquering victory and all the things that they wanted. It shifts in verse 6 to call the Messiah God. You see that? It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, 
God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Did you get that? See, when you just look at verse 6, and somebody tells you, look how it shifted from verse 5 to 6. It was talking about the Messiah, and then the Messiah is called God. Your mind wants to say, no, no, you don't really get the poetry here. It was talking to the Messiah, and now it's being addressed to God, because that does often happen in a psalm. But it's just reinforced with verse 7 by saying, God, you're God. So it's like, we've got two gods here, or what? No, we have one God, but he is Father, he is Son, and he is Holy Spirit. It's the doctrine that we call the Trinity, even though that word's never in the Bible anywhere, but the doctrine is there. The truth is there. So, to the Son, this is what he says. God calls the Messiah. He calls the Anointed One. The word anointed means the Messiah. He calls him God. God calls the Messiah God. And in Hebrews, the writer is saying, to which of the angels was something like that ever said? That was never said to Moses. That, that, would, that would never have been said to Elijah. That would never have been said to Michael or Gabriel. But it's said concerning the Messiah. It's said concerning the Son. And that he rules from all eternity. See, in their mind, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to become a ruler. No, he doesn't become a ruler. He is the ruler who comes in to the earth, born the baby king, right? And it's so obvious because you've got this, these, these wise men coming. They're giving him gold, frankincense, murder. Everybody's worshiping him. Herod is scared to death of him because he's born king of the Jews. He wa- you can't be, you understand that, you know, Danny and I, we can't be, we could, our, our kids, when they were born, they couldn't be born as the kings of some kingdom for a very simple reason that we are not kings of a kingdom. You can't just become a king, right? In the classical sense of it, you can become president, but you can't become a king. You have to be a king to become a king, right? And so he comes into the earth. He is the ruler uh, already. And then, the, then, and then it goes, go back, going back over to Hebrews. Sorry, make you jump around like this. Going back over to Hebrews, it says in verse 10, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation. This is continuing a quote. What? See, it's a given in Hebrews that if it's in the Bible, God said it, right? And that's how we need to approach the Bible. So in verse 10, there's another quote of God's. So this is what God says. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. Now look with me at that psalm, because this is powerful. Look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102. One of the things in Hebrews especially is when there's a quote from the Old Testament, you need to look at the the context of the quote, because the, the attention is being drawn not just to the one single verse, but to the context there often. And in Psalm 102, the 102nd Psalm, I want to read from verse verse 23 through the end of the Psalm, through 28. In Psalm 102, 23, it says, He has weakened my strength in the way. He has shortened my days. I say, O my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Let me stop there just for a minute. If you'll go back and read the entirety of Psalm 102, I'm just not going to take the time to do it. I'll leave that for you. This is a clearly messianic psalm. They knew that this was a psalm concerning the Messiah, and it makes the most clear picture. It's it's eerie. The picture of the crucifixion is so clear because crucifixion was not a punishment common in the time that this psalm was written or something that writer would have even been aware of. And yet it's very clear when you read this psalm that the Messiah will be crucified. You'll read through it. If you've never read through it, you'll be like, wow, that's exactly what happened in the Gospels. Okay? So it's the same psalm. And, it, and, it, and the crucifixion part and the suffering part of it ends like this. He is weak in my strength in the way, etc., what we just read. So this part, verses 23 and 24a, where it says, you know, again, I think you know this, 
but the verses and chapter numbers, they weren't there in the original, right? So it's, it's okay to break them up because that's just how somebody about a thousand years ago decided to put them. But beginning with verse 23, it says, He has weakened my strength in the way, he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. That is the cry of the Messiah to the Father God from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do not take me away in the midst of my days. That's the cry of the Messiah to God. But beginning with the second half of verse 24, it's God's answer to the Messiah, okay? Which is made very clear in Hebrews. So he cries from the cross, we'll imagine here, right? That's what the psalm's talking about. Out to the Father, and here's the answer the Father gives to him, to the Son. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old, you founded the earth. The Father says about the Son, you are the one who founded the earth. He doesn't even say we. Now, I'm not denying that it wasn't a we, because we see in Genesis that, that it is a we, right? But this, this dad, this father, says to his son, you founded the earth, son, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish. Even the stars will perish. Even the planets will perish. The Milky Way will perish. The galaxies will perish. But you will endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. What's that talking about? It's talking about resurrection. It's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. And it's what, what God is saying to him in this prophetic messianic psalm, the Father is saying to the Son, I will not cut you off. You will die, but I will raise you again on the third day. You will rise from that grave on the third day. Your years will not be cut off, and then everything else will die, including each one of us that are here tonight, right? But don't worry, he will raise you from the dead with the same power of resurrection by the same spirit. And it's all here in this psalm. It says, all of them will wear like a garment, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you, again, this is still the Father talking to the Son, you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Did you get that? Even in Psalm 102, the church is already mentioned. We are the children of his descendants. We're the children of the, those apostles. To the Jew first, but then it came to the Greek. It's going out into the whole world. The church is already mentioned here. And we will be established before him. We will stand before his face for all of eternity and uh, in his presence. And then look at Psalm 110, verse 1. First, you've got to go back to Hebrews real quick. You go back to Hebrews, and then it says in verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said? So it begins with... Um, uh, it, be, it begins with, of the Son, he says, and then verse 13, it says, but to which of the angels has he ever said? And this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Actually, don't open up Psalm 110. We'll just read it right here. It says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Go with me over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And verse 42. Now remember, all of these people who received this epistle, they were just like you and me. Except they probably knew the scriptures better than we do. <laughs> and even though the New Testament hadn't been completed yet, the Gospels had been written. And it's most likely that at least the Gospel of Mark had been read by them in Rome already. Because they were circulated like that in the first century. Uh, but even if they had not read the text that we read, they had been told the entire gospel stories, and they knew the gospel inside and out. So when this is mentioned, they think of something that's in Matthew chapter 22, just like we do, or we should. In Matthew chapter 22, and in verse 41, we read, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ, or the Messiah, right? 
Whose son is he? So you see, for Jesus, this was an important theme. This theme of the Messiah being a son. They all knew the Messiah is somebody's son because it says it there in the Psalms over and over again. Whose son is he? Jesus asked them. I love when Jesus asks the questions. Usually it's them asking the questions, trying to bug Jesus, but here he asked them the question, whose son is he? And they said to him, oh, he's the son of David. Well, on one level, he is the son of David in the sense of he's descended from David. And Jesus fulfills all those requirements. But that's a human level. There's God's level. So they say the son of David. And he says to them, then how does David in the spirit, because David writes Psalm 110, how does David in the spirit, so Jesus, these little things are important, Jesus confirms that the scripture that we have is God-breathed, it's inspired by God. What David is writing in Psalm, not every word David said is in the spirit, but what he wrote in Psalm 102, that's inspired by God. This is God's word. How does David in the spirit call him, call the Messiah, Lord? How can he call the Messiah Lord if the Messiah is his son? He's asking him. And then he quotes this same verse, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And it's a really good question. Because that has never been said to any angel. That was never said to David. And it's very clear, just the simple grammar of the sentence is clear, that the Lord said to my Lord, there are three people here, right? There's the Lord, there's me, and there's my Lord. And the me is writing it. I'm writing it. And I say, the Lord said to my Lord. And these words were said to him, not to me. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet, until I make them your footstool. Amen. So look at Verse 14, this is the last verse we're going to look at. Then in, in Hebrews, I'm going to explain something and close it up here. Verse 14, are they not, it's talking about the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so in everything that I've been saying this evening and everything that's written here, we, we should not think that angels are being put down by what's being said here. Because that's not the point. You know, that's like little, like, I was going to say little kids, but teenagers do it and adults do it too, where you put somebody else down to make yourself look better. You know what I'm saying? Well, <laughs> Jesus doesn't need to put anybody down. You know, if we put the angels down in this, we're not making an argument that Jesus is superior to anything, right? There, there's nothing here that's putting angels down. It's already said, I just didn't focus on it, but it's already uh, been said concerning them that they are his angels, that he makes them his winds. And this word winds is the word spirits. He makes them his spirits. And his ministers are a flame of fire. I mean, anybody, and all of them had, that had read the Old Testament, knows the power, the majesty, and the glory of these angels. But here's something in verse 14 that I'll bet none of them ever thought about really very much. Because I don't know if we think about it very much. He says that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. God sends them out for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And I want to point something out to you that um, is important here. And it'll take just a minute, okay? So look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. I could just say it too, but I want you to see it. In Psalm 103, in verse 20, it says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. And then in Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, in Daniel 7, 10, we read, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. But notice in verse 9 it says, 
Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Daniel sees God in this vision. So that means he sees Jesus. He sees the Son of God. The God Son who exists in the form of God. And he sees that all the angels are ministering to him. So when we go back over to Hebrews, where it says, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, first and foremost, the reason, and this is really important, the reason why angels minister to us is because they minister to Jesus. They were created to minister to God. So if their ministry has been extended to us, we must be something special for Jesus. He must really care about our salvation. He must really care about our lives. He must care about our children and our grandchildren more than we ever could. And there are angels sent out to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. Inheritance means it didn't belong to us before, but we got it because Jesus died. You get an inheritance when someone dies. Jesus died, and he raised again from the dead, but we died with him, and we were risen together with him, so we enter into the glory of that inheritance. And don't think that the angel's ministry to you stopped on the day you received Jesus or got baptized. No, because your salvation journey isn't completed yet. We're still being saved, and we will be saved completely in the day that we are resurrected from the dead. And angels minister to us in this life, whether we see them or not. I, I'm going to be honest, I've never seen an angel. I've met a lot of people that have had visions of angels. I've never seen an angel. And, and honestly, I don't really necessarily need to see an angel. If God wants me to see an angel, I'm good with it. But, but I don't really feel like I need to see an angel because I know they're here. And I know they're ministering to us. I know that God cares about us. You know, in Psalm 91, it says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. There are angels ministering throughout the Old Testament. From the very beginning, they're keeping the tree of life so that we would not perish for eternity in our sin. They're visiting Abraham. They're delivering Lot. They're ministering to Jacob and showing him a stairway to heaven, a way to go to God. They're ministering in the giving of the law, and that's going to become important in chapter 2. Acts 7, 53 in Stephen's sermon, he talks about the angels ministered in the giving of the law. They helped in giving the law to Moses. They proclaimed the birth of Samson and other prophets. There's an angel that stands guard over Jerusalem with a drawn sword because of the presumption of David. And that, that, that angel obeyed God when God told him, put that sword away. He stopped. They do exactly what God tells them to do. They minister prophetic revelations to Daniel. Their ministry continues in Jesus' passion. They're in the garden of Gethsemane, ministering to him, supporting him. They're throughout the book of Acts, and we see them all the way through the book of Revelation. So whether you see them or not, they are here, and they are ministering to us, and they have charge over us. But Psalm 91, if you go read it, if you read the entirety of the psalm, it's obvious that that verse that we love to quote and we know is actually written concerning the Messiah, not about me. But I get in on it because I'm in Christ. Even the devil understood that that promise was given to Jesus because you remember, that's one of the temptations. He said, isn't it written about you? So go ahead and jump off the, the, the top of the steeple here. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Everything's cool. You've got angels that are going to take care of you. You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you should not tempt the Lord your God. So I'm going to end just with a couple of statements here. And then, we're, and then I'm going to kind of repeat them next time also because this is, is really important. So angels are servants and a son is son. There's a question. Is Christ not also an angel of God? Is he not a messenger of God? Does he not appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord? yes. He does. He appears as, in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. Is Jesus Christ also not a ministering spirit in a flame of fire? Yes, he is. You see, John the Baptist talks about baptizing them in fire. Is he not also God's word sent to us? Yes. 
And does it not say in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many? So is Jesus not also a servant of God? Yes. But the correlation between angels and the Son that is here in Hebrews is not a correlation between angels that serve and a son that gets served, okay? That is being served. But the difference that's being drawn that you have to see here is the difference between servants and son. Between servants and son. Between slave and son. And that same difference is used in other places in the New Testament and even in parables of Jesus. Service is common to both the slave and to the son. The, but the slave, he serves the master of the house. The son does not serve the master of the house. The son serves his father. Yes, the master of the house and the father are one and the same, but the relationship is different. Do you understand? The son serves the father, and the son is the inheritor of the father's estate. So, and hopefully someday we can instill this in all of our kids, right? So when you do good for me, you're just doing good for yourself. You know, what are you coloring on the walls for, kid? This is going to be your house someday. You understand? That when the son is serving the father, he's serving himself also because he is the inheritor of the home. The angels are serving a master. They are slaves. In John uh, 15, uh, 15, Jesus says that, you know, I think it's verse 15. He says, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you my friends. Yeah, it's verse 15. Because the slave does not know what his master is doing. Right? So a slave, a servant, he may be a highly placed slave. He may be somebody like Joseph was in Egypt. He may be somebody like Daniel was in Babylon. He could be the, the most highly placed slave, very trusted, very well trusted. And it may be that he participates in the counsels of his master. There are angels who definitely in Scripture participate in the counsels of God. Okay? And there are some really highly placed angels up there. Michael, Gabriel, these kind, right? But the angel has no role to play in the final decision. They don't have the kind of counsel where the angels all vote on something and the majority wins. You understand? They participate in the counsel of God, but they do not make a final decision. The angel does not understand wholly the plan of his master because he is a slave. And he does not always completely understand how his obedience is a part of that plan. He obeys because he's told to obey. I don't have time to read it, but this comes out in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. It says, it tells us in brief that the angels long to look into the gospel they wish they could understand what you understand. Because you are not slaves, you are the friends of Jesus. The angels serve God because that's what they were created to do. But we serve God because we are his children. And if we could just get this into our heads, that by doing the will of God, we're only making our own lives better. We're only blessing ourselves because we're taking care of the house of God that we are the inheritors of. Most of the problems we have in our life with sin, I know this is true in my life and has been since I was a little boy, is because I just don't really get it yet how much God loves me. And I get this, I start getting more revelation. I think, why did I used to act like that? Why, why did I get, why did I used to have such a bad temper and get so angry with people that put me down and stuff like that? And one day I started realizing, who cares what people think? I know what God thinks about me. And I'm not saying I never get mad about that now, but I'm saying it's definitely not like it was when I was, you know, a, a junior high school guy back in eighth grade or something like that and all the fights we would get in and all that kind of stuff. But I'm just saying you've got to get a revelation that you're a child of God, that God loves you. This is how Jesus serves. And he calls us the friends of God. You remember Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision uh, of God, and he's standing before the throne. In Isaiah chapter 6, he talks about the seraphim, remember? And he says that they, each one of them had six wings, okay? 
And he says that with two of those wings, they covered their feet. With two of those wings, they covered their faces. And with two of those wings, they would fly. And there's a picture in that. The angels never go anywhere of their own accord. They don't have feet. I mean, they have feet, but they're covered feet. They don't have the freedom to go of their own accord, like we do. They cover their faces. They don't have the freedom or the ability to understand all the plans and purposes of God, which have been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, if only we would take the time to listen to God. He wants us to know, right? But what they do have the freedom to do and the power to do is to fly, to go forth at God's word and his message and accomplish what he does. And they're really, really good at that. So the son is one with the father. The angels are servants to the father. When he does the will of father, he is also doing his own will. So I'm going to end with that. And then we're going to start with chapter two next week. Lord willing, we'll get to it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. And I pray, number one, that as we study these things, um, I don't think that there, there's anything that's being said that we didn't already believe, but I think there's a lot that we're reading here that we do take for granted, and so it doesn't have the same power or in, in our lives that it would if we really understood it. And Lord, I just pray that you would reveal to our hearts and our minds that it'd be just like those guys on the road to Emmaus, that you would open the scripture to us, that our hearts would burn on the inside of us and our minds would be opened to see you, to know you, that you would disclose yourself to us, as we used to say, and that we would really see you in our lives and all of your glory and your majesty and how you left that. You did not grasp at that, but you came down and you were introduced into our lives so that you could lead us out of the prison we were in into your glory, Lord. And I just pray that that glory would more and more manifest in our lives and we would em embrace who we are. How many angels? I don't know, it's probably not the right word, but it seems to be what Peter is saying, that they're, they're jealous that we have this relationship that we have. And I bet there's just got to be angels all around us that say, what? Why are you acting like that? You're a child of God. I wish I could be a child of God. Lord, you are so much better than the angels. I pray that we would never settle for the angels, uh, for letting angels be greater than you, Lord. That we would never worship the idols of this world, the things of this world, Lord. We would never compromise because we have the best already. Why would we want anything less? And I thank you. For this revelation, what you reveal to us through your word this evening, and pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope Amen. you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.